Hello and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. This is the final episode of three on the incorporation of the periphery regions of Tibet, Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang into the PRC. Today we're talking about Xinjiang, but before we get into the episode, as usual, two quick announcements. First, sign up for the Sinobabble emails at sinobabble.com to receive updates about this podcast and interesting reads about China. Second, you can now donate to the Sinobabble podcast, if you wish, by going to the Sinobabble website and clicking on the donate button. That's it, let's get into the episode. Xinjiang is China's largest province and northwestern frontier, bordering Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India, and making up around 18% of China's landmass. Since medieval times, this area has often been referred to as Turkestan, the land of the Turkic-speaking nomads, and later, when it came under the Qing dynasty, it became known as Chinese Turkestan by foreign powers. Apart from bordering many different nations, Xinjiang has throughout history been a meeting place for people from various regions, cultures and religions, due to its important location on the Silk Road trading route, which was established around the 2nd century BC. Throughout its history, Xinjiang has been a fairly multicultural society that's been influenced by Middle Eastern, Chinese and Indian culture, as well as their politics, with nomadic, often Turkic-Mongolian rulers from the north presiding over an Indo-European agricultural society in the southern part of the province, whose ethnic makeup changed as it blended over time. Xinjiang has always been on China's frontier, sometimes part of the empire and sometimes not, dominated at different times by the Tibetans, the Mongolians, the Xiongnu, the Han Chinese, and various other tribes and empires. It's come under the influence of many cultures and religions and has changed rulers so many times that it's actually really difficult to keep track of all the name changes for major cities and regions, but I'm going to try my best to paint a fairly coherent picture of the region from the medieval period, like I did for Tibet and Inner Mongolia. But before I dive into all of that, I just wanted to preface the discussion about the history of Xinjiang with some context that I feel we should bear in mind when we're talking about it, as well as when we're talking about Tibetan and Mongolian history as well. So it's easy to think of history as a sort of linear series of dots, with the dots representing dynasties or empires or states that connect neatly to one another, because that's basically how we live now in society, and that's how history is generally written by historians. I'm guilty of doing the same thing in this very podcast. But there are often more gaps than historians usually like to or even can admit to, because at the end of the day, history was written by these states, who tended to see themselves as the epicenters of power. In reality, periods of statelessness and the existence of stateless people is more the norm than large, all-encompassing states that exist today, especially in pre-modern periods. For example, in Xinjiang, most of the people didn't really live in a kingdom or as part of an empire, but as sort of hinterland people in gatherings of towns or even just scattered across large areas. Yes, they did interact with states, for example China, but these kingdoms often tended to overstate their reach and influence. Any pre-modern state without access to proper roads, transportation, telecommunications, or any of the other modern conveniences that our current nations take for granted would, according to some sources, 
only have true dominion of a sort of radius of 300 kilometers. So when I say that Xinjiang fell into Qing control, for example, it's important to remember that the Qing dynasty was based in Beijing, around 4,000 kilometers or 2,500 miles from Kashgar in Xinjiang, or in modern terms, around a six-hour flight. So if I say something like, the Qing dynasty failed to institute Confucian education in Xinjiang, then you'll know that it wasn't for a lack of trying, but because it was basically impossible. I think this way of understanding the history of stateless peoples as written by states is best summed up by James C. Scott in his book The Art of Not Being Governed, which is more about the stateless people of an area called Zomia in Southeast Asia, but the example is still quite relevant to us. So he says, quote, What blocks a clear view of the peoples of mainland Southeast Asia for most of the history is the state, classical, colonial and independent. While a state-centric view of, say, the past 50 years might be justified, it represents a gross distortion of earlier periods. The earlier the period, the greater the distortion. For most of its history, Southeast Asia has been marked by the relative absence of even valley states. Where they arose, they tended to be remarkably short-lived, comparatively weak outside a small and variable radius of the court centre, and generally unable to systematically extract resources, including manpower, from a substantial population. Indeed, interregna, far from being uncommon, were more protracted than regna, and before the colonial period, a welter of petty principalities allowed much of the population to shift their residences and loyalties to their advantage, or move to a zone of no sovereignty or of mutually cancelling sovereignties. So I wanted to mention this and just to put the entire discussion into context because after writing this episode, I realised that this was the actual theme of not just this particular episode, but of this mini-series in general. The theme being understanding how stateless people were written so neatly into the history of China and how the CCP uses this history to their advantage in the modern period. The history of modern Xinjiang is similar to the histories of Tibet and Inner Mongolia that we've already discussed. All three came under the control of China during the imperial period, all sought to establish their own independence, and now all three find themselves incorporated into the PRC, ostensibly against their will. Like Tibet and Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang now struggles to strike a balance between its ethnic identity and its national identity. It's also come to the world's attention for the human rights abuses that the central Chinese government has exacted upon its predominantly Muslim population, justified as part of the War on Terror and the CCP's seemingly unending fight against secession. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of how this situation came about by understanding the relationship between China and Xinjiang since the ascension of the very first group of Uyghurs. So the Uyghurs that I'm talking about here rose to power in about the 8th century and originated from the Inner Asian steppe area, like the Mongolians. So the Uyghurs were known by the Chinese as the Nine Clans, and they ruled the area that makes up roughly Xinjiang, Mongolia, and parts of Manchuria for around 100 years during the 8th and 9th centuries. So these Uyghurs are not culturally or even genetically exactly the same as modern-day Uyghurs, although they do form part of their understanding of their own ancestry. So they weren't Muslim at the time, 
and they actually practiced mainly Manichaeism and also incorporated some other religions such as Buddhism and Christianity. It should be noted that at this time, the term Uyghur also didn't connote any specific ethnic identity, as most people from the Turkic-speaking region in and around Xinjiang tended to identify themselves with their tribal group, whether they were settled or nomadic, or with just the area that they came from. Anyway, this Uyghur kingdom had a close relationship with the Tang dynasty, whom they helped crush the almost devastating Anlushan rebellion in the mid-8th century. Anlushan was a general from the Sogidan Turkish clan and rose to fame in the court of the Tang Emperor Xuanzong, eventually becoming an extremely powerful general with leadership over three provinces. But he took advantage of that position and some weaknesses within the Tang court to launch his own rebellion that pushed the Tang government out of the capital and dragged on for many years until the Uyghurs basically stepped in and helped. The Tang was able to continue thanks to the help of the Uyghurs, to whom they had to pay some tribute for a few years as well. The Uyghur dynasty was eventually ousted by a Kyrgyz tribe from the Tuva region, which is modern-day Russia, and a band of refugees formed the Kocho Uyghur Empire in eastern and central Xinjiang, while another dynasty was set up in the west under the Karakhanids. All of these people descended from the Uyghur groups, and from the 9th to the 13th century, Xinjiang was split up amongst these various tribal groups, and it was also during this period that the people of the region were slowly converted to Islam. Now, there are two very different stories as to how the Islamification of the Turkic people of this region took place. One story is that the Karakhanids were growing close to the rulers of the region known as Transoxiana, which is now modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kurdistan and parts of Kazakhstan. So a brother of the ruler of Transoxiana came to the relative of the Karakhanid court named Bugra Khan seeking refuge, and Bugra Khan made this person a governor of Artush, which is near Kashgar, which is a very important and famous stop along the Silk Road in western Xinjiang. So while the governor of Artush, this man built a mosque there, and then when the nephew of Bugra Khan, called Satuk, came to visit, he was so entranced by the way that all the Muslims stopped at the call to prayer that he began studying the Quran himself. Having converted to Islam, Satuk then took it upon himself to defeat his uncle in battle, become Bugra Khan himself, and spread Islam among his people, which apparently only took about five years. The other less fun story is that the extended contact with Muslim traders and the fluid movement of people throughout the steppe, and particularly along the Silk Road, led to the gradual penetration of Islam, which was eventually also adopted by the Karakhanid rulers, who later went on to conquer Muslim Transoxiana in the 11th century. The fact that it was the Karakhanid Turks and not the Kocho Uyghurs that adopted Islam at this time is apparently a topic of serious debate in modern China, especially when it comes to questions of current Uyghur ancestry and the rights of China over the region. Historians outside of China argue that bickering over the true nature of Uyghur history, the movement of its peoples and the exact timing of Islamification doesn't really matter much. After all, this is just historians trying to create neat narratives of the past so that historical books and essays are easier to comprehend and so that political claims are easier to justify. Again, all of this relates back to what I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. 
We like history to flow without gaps and make all peoples and their histories legible whether or not they want it to be. The truth is that across the world, stateless people have always defied codification, with languages, religious beliefs, cultural customs and genealogy varying widely within very small areas and changing frequently in very short periods of time, particularly if those areas are in mountainous or very inaccessible areas. In pre-modern times, this was especially true of nomadic peoples, who tended to just move if they came within reach of a state that they didn't want to be part of, meaning that their history is usually imposed upon them by the state without their knowledge. At the end of the day, both the Kocho Uyghurs and the Karakhanids were descended from the same Turkic nomadic peoples, and all of these groups intermarried with the various people around them, including the Chinese, Indian, Persian and Mongolian tribes. However, this multivariate identity brings about problems later, similar to those that we encountered in the episodes on Tibet and Mongolia. While there is some identity that can be labelled Uyghur, and there is a culture shared by those who live in Xinjiang, it's not necessarily the case that there's a strong sense of nationality or nationalism that's shared by those people. The idea of a unified nation under a contiguous, if not continuous, imperial system doesn't really exist in these regions as it does in China. After China was unified and divided numerous times, the Han people always had certain aspects of their national identity to fall back on. Shared culture, written language, same religion, same philosophy, same sense of territory, mannerisms, education system, etc. All of these things united the Han in a way that they did not unite the nomadic, disparate, multicultural peoples of Inner Asia. And this is the root of what some scholars call today the Xinjiang problem. And it has its beginnings in the medieval period, particularly after the fall of the Mongolian Empire. So just jumping back to the 10th century really quickly. So after Xinjiang is all split up, there are lots of other tribes that come out to establish their dominance in and around the region. For example, you have the Karakate, who established the Liao dynasty from 916 to 1125 in northern China and parts of Mongolia and in the Korean peninsula. And interestingly enough, this name, Karakate, is apparently where the old word for China, Cathay, was derived. So that's just an interesting fact. Although the Chinese Song dynasty failed to overthrow them, they were eventually overthrown by the Jin dynasty who I mentioned in the last episode, were the Jurchen Manchurian tribe, who were the ancestors of the Qing dynasty. However, one of the Liao survived, who was a minor lord named Yellow Dashi, who then went on to dominate all of the Uyghurs, and then the Karakhanids, and gather support from Turkic, Mongolian, Uyghur, Chinese, Iranian, and maybe even Jurchen tribes, and eventually established his own empire in Transoxiana. This lasted until the 13th century, when, after a succession of weak and imperious rulers, it was summarily absorbed into the Mongolian Empire. As I mentioned in the episode on Inner Mongolia, the Mongolians actually adopted the Uyghur writing system as their own written language, and it was actually a Uyghur who taught Genghis Khan's sons how to read and write. After Genghis's death and the division of the empire amongst his sons, Xinjiang was given to his son Chagatai, separate from Mongolia and China, which I mentioned in the last episode became the Yuan dynasty under Ogadai and then Kublai. 
there was much fighting between the Chagatai clans in the west and the Kublai clans in the east over the agriculturally bountiful and very rich region of Xinjiang. And the area was sort of fought over and split up between the two, with the Uyghur region, which is more to the east, usually remaining loyal to the Chinese Yuan dynasty. So in a similar vein to the previous episode, we're going to skip forward a little bit to avoid dwelling on the medieval period, so that we get to the 20th century at least within the hour. After the fall of the Mongolian Empire, the important things to note about the Xinjiang region are the rise of new powers, being the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz and the Oirats, who were also the Zungas, which we talked about in the last episode, and also the complete Islamification of the region by the 17th century. At the same time, as we move into the late 16th and early 17th centuries, Xinjiang was beginning to be squeezed in by the ascendancy of different imperial powers in the region, the Qing dynasty to the east, the Russians to the north, the fractured Timurid Empire to the west, and British India to the south. So as we move into the modern period, Xinjiang becomes a bit more distinctly divided between the north and the south, the south being the more Indo-European peoples based around an area called the Tarim Basin, and the northern Inner Asian part, which was more closely related to Mongolia. The area now known as Northern Xinjiang was actually part of the Zunga territory, the Oirat Mongols that we discussed in the last episode. So the Zungas, as part of the Qing periphery, also administered the southern part of Xinjiang indirectly by extracting precious metals and other resources from the area, such as grain, cotton, and spices like saffron. They also took great pains to develop the agriculture of the region, bringing in captives from bordering countries to build irrigation works and become farmers in the region. The most numerous of those were non-nomadic Turkic Muslims, who are now today's Uyghur ancestors. But they weren't known as Uyghurs yet. That doesn't happen for another 200 years or so. The Qing didn't fully conquer the Zunga region until 1755, after jostling for control of eastern parts of Xinjiang, including Urumqi, for decades. However, a series of ever-weakening rulers gave the Qing their opportunity, as one of the struggling successors to the throne, Amur Sana, was defeated by a rival in 1752 and fled to the Qing Empire looking for support from the emperor. Seeing an opportunity, the Qianlong Emperor gladly received this refugee, using his 20,000 followers to boost his own numbers and to take Zungaria once and for all in 1755. I spoke about most of this in the last episode, but something I didn't mention was a rather bloody event that took place shortly after the Qing gained control of Outer Mongolia and the Xinjiang region. The Qianlong Emperor intended to divide Zungaria among four different local rulers, with Amusana being one of them. However, Amusana decided that he would rather rule the entire region and named himself Khan, and wrote to the Qing Emperor to reject his offer for just a tiny slice of Xinjiang. He wanted the whole slice of Xinjiang. Furious, the Qianlong Emperor launched another expedition into the region, this time aiming to solve the Zungaria problem once and for all. He told his military to show no mercy at all to these rebels, ordering them to slaughter all of the people of Zungaria, and that, quote, only the old and weak should be saved. The majority of Zunga men were killed, and their wives and children were doled out among the Qing officers as slaves, with their Zunga heritage being completely erased. 
The depopulation of the region was completed as the surviving population were wiped out by smallpox and starvation, leading to the death of around 500,000 people. This campaign is actually officially classified as a genocide due to the huge change in demographics in the region, with the complete extermination of anyone identifying as Zunga and the resettlement of Han, Manchus and other Muslim minorities in the region. Just a random fact to accompany this brutal part of the story. While Amarasana is obviously reviled in Chinese history, there's actually a street named after him in the Mongolian People's Republic in Ulaanbaatar, ostensibly a sign of resistance to Chinese imperialism. Following this episode, the Qing then had to change their plans a little bit. They had planned to just leave the southern part of Xinjiang to Amosana, but they had to then go and conquer it themselves, basically, if they wanted to control it. It was very logistically difficult and extremely expensive, but the Qing court justified it as necessary as a security measure, protecting the borders of the empire from incursion and adding a necessary bulwark to the defences in Mongolia. In the late 18th century, this newly incorporated region was renamed to be called the New Frontier, which is the literal translation of Xinjiang. The Qing did very little to intervene in the southern part of Xinjiang, leaving local rule to Muslim elites known as Begs, taxing them in kind, and setting up cotton farms and copper and iron mines, and establishing the region as an important trade post with merchants from India and Persia to bring in gems, livestock, materials, and opium into China. The area was maintained and supervised by around 50,000 Qing bannermen from Manchu, Mongolian, and Chinese ethnic groups, and the majority of magistrates in the area were also of Manchu and Mongolian makeup, and they were usually permanently based there, reporting back to the central government, but keeping the taxes local to sustain the region's economy. But like I said before, this was also probably because people were taxed in kind and the centre of the economy was so far away that you couldn't really send grain all the way there. So it just made sense to sort of keep it locally contained. This system functioned peacefully until the mid-19th century, with the Qing government acting as like a colonial government and not really making any attempts to sinicize the local population. However, a series of events occurring in the 18th and 19th century saw the Qing work to bring Xinjiang into the centralised Chinese empire, forming the beginnings of a national identity over the region from which they would not be able to escape even after the fall of the Qing dynasty. The first sign of trouble was the Ush uprising in the mid-18th century, when a local Manchu named Su Cheng, the high official of Ush Turpan, which is now Uk Turpan in West Xinjiang, began abducting local Muslim women, raping them, and holding them captive in his compound for months to be abused by him and his family members. The locals there eventually rebelled, and the Qing responded by massacring the men and enslaving the women and children of the town. From that point on, Qing oversight in the region increased, and the autonomy of the Muslim Beg leaders was severely decreased. Throughout the late 18th and 19th centuries, the Qing also had to deal with incursions, mainly in the far western Kashgar region from the Kokandi, the people of the Kokand Khanate based in modern Kyrgyzstan, eastern Uzbekistan and southern Kazakhstan, which lasted from the 18th to the end of the 19th century. They also had to deal with the Koja, who were a Muslim Turkic tribe in the area. When these groups had either been defeated or bargained with, the Qing had yet another, more turbulent uprising to deal with, 
In the mid-1850s, as the Qing was still reeling from the effects of the Taiping Rebellion, a cash-strapped and heavily taxed population of Chinese Muslims, known as the Tungun Hui people, began a rebellion in Xinjiang province, which was linked with other religious rebellions in the surrounding provinces of Gansu and Ningxia, known collectively as the Dungan Revolt. In Xinjiang, this encouraged the Uyghur Muslims to rebel as well, although they weren't mainly motivated by religion, but more by strained economic circumstances. To give a brief synopsis of ensuing events, an Uzbek military leader named Yakub Beg took advantage of the chaos and weakened Qing position to take over Kashgar for himself, and then slowly expand throughout the rest of the region until he held the entirety of Xinjiang under his control. His regime was unpopular. Yakub enforced strict adherence to Islamic law, taxed the population heavily, and the lack of trade from China meant that the economic situation of the region only got worse. Many local people even felt forced to admit that the rule of the Manchus was better than their current predicament. One comment that I particularly like was from, uh, I think, a local Muslim leader who said, quote, I hate them, but they were not bad rulers. We had everything then. There's nothing now. Jakob was forced to turn to the Russian and British empires for trade and support, opening up the region to international politics for really the first time and introducing modern goods as well as modern concepts to the area. But alas, his regime was not to last. So if you cast your mind back all the way to episode one of this podcast, I mentioned a very famous military leader called Zhuo Zongtang, who was instrumental in bringing down the Taiping Rebellion the Nian Rebellion, and just a host of rebellions that had started breaking out towards the end of the Qing dynasty. If you don't remember him, that's fine, it doesn't really matter, but the important thing to note is that he was the person who led the downfall of Jakob Beg's regime in 1877, and he also was the one who advocated turning Xinjiang into an official province, which it was in 1884. The aftermath of this reconquest is of great significance to our current discussion as to the legitimacy of Xinjiang either as an independent state or as a Chinese province. Scholars have long debated whether or not the idea of China, or Zhongguo as a concept, originated during the Qing dynasty, or whether concepts of nationalism developed after its collapse during the 20th century. Some scholars have argued that the Qing did not conflate itself with the idea of China and that the idea of China referred to the Han people and their rulers in the multi-ethnic empire. Other scholars have argued that the incorporation of Inner Asia into the Qing Empire fundamentally changed the way in which the idea of China was thought about, and that from the reconquest of Xinjiang in the mid-19th century onwards, the Qing tirelessly promoted an idea of Chinese nationalism that included the periphery and their inhabitants. So we can explore these ideas by looking at the changes made in Xinjiang and in China generally after the mid-19th century. By making Xinjiang a province, the old layered system of governance was done away with in favour of direct rule under Chinese administrators. Administratively, the entire region went from being governed by Manchus and Mongols to almost exclusively by Han Chinese. Local Muslim leaders were downgraded from begs to clerks as they knew the local language and customs better than the Han officials. In an essay on imperial Qing ideology, 
The scholar Gang Zhao describes how the Qing worked to present China as a multi-ethnic state that included the peoples of Inner Asia as part of the Chinese national identity. In the mid-18th century, the Qianlong Emperor had the map of China changed to incorporate Xinjiang, as well as Mongolia, Qinghai and Tibet. The people who lived in these areas were no longer referred to as foreign barbarians, but rather as Chinese. The Qianlong Emperor had also allowed for Han migration into the area from this period onwards, and allowed majority Chinese populations to change the names of Xinjiang cities into Chinese ones. However, most of the migrants during this period were poor Uyghurs who had been working away in the southern part of the Xinjiang province and who could now take advantage of the areas to the north and east that had been abandoned during the war, often with the help of the Qing government. Confucian schools were also set up in the region to train young boys as scholars who could then go on to take the imperial civil service exams and become officials of the Qing court. However, these schools generally ended up being a failure. Neither the teachers nor the students particularly were motivated to succeed, and the whole plan generally just met a lot of resistance until 1911. Great works of geography published in the mid-19th century all included Mongolia, Manchuria and Xinjiang as part of China, and many scholars at this time rejected the notion that the Confucianization of the region was even needed in order to incorporate the peoples into the empire. Rather, what was needed was an understanding that China was a multi-ethnic state, not a Han state with an empire that was sort of built around it. So the answer isn't altogether entirely clear. These changes may have spurred the Qing to create an idea of a multi-ethnic nationalist state, or that idea may have arisen a bit later. But there's no doubt that it was during the 18th and 19th centuries that the foundations of a modern-day multicultural nationalist rhetoric were laid. When we get to the 20th century and the fall of the Qing dynasty and the rise of the Republican era, these views are even more reinforced. With the changing of the curriculum to include modern Western subjects, Children educated in geography had to learn where the territories of the empire sat in order to, quote, cultivate their patriotism, a view that was reflected in the over 150 textbooks that were printed on geography. Students were also required to study one of four Chinese dialects, Manchu, Uyghur, Tibetan or Mongolian. In 1911, as the Qing dynasty was handing over power to Yuan Shikai, they said in their abdicating edict that, quote, We welcome the establishment of a great Chinese republic that integrates all of the territories where dwell the five ethnic groups, that is, Manchus, Han, Mongols, Muslims and Tibetans. After the collapse of the Qing dynasty, Xinjiang fell into the hands of the warlord Yang Zhengxian, after the last governor of the region fled in the midst of the Xinhai rebellion. Yang stayed basically loyal to the central governments of Beijing as they changed hands over the years, until he was assassinated in 1928 by someone who was then assassinated by the person who then became the next leader of the region, named Jin Shuren. Now, Jin fell out of favour with the nationalist government because he began working very closely with the Russians. The nationalist government then appointed someone to overthrow Jin. Now, after some chaos in this time, yet another nationalist general named Shang Shizai came to take power in the region, setting up his own regime as warlord for 11 years, from 1933 to 1944. And he was eventually toppled by rebellion himself, 
And I think afterwards he went on to become agricultural minister. But um, yeah, the people who were in control of Xinjiang in this period changed very quickly and they're not too important. But there are two important periods that I do want to talk about because they're quite relevant to our discussions about modern day Xinjiang. So these two periods are 1933 to 1934 and 1944 to 1947. So on the 12th of November 1933, the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Republic was founded in Kashgar. It was to be a modern state governed based on Sharia law, though its immediate concern was obviously with survival in the face of mounting pressure from all sides. The new republic suffered from high inflation and food shortages, as well as a lack of recognition from any country in the international sphere, and eventually failed when it was sacked by Hui Muslim warlords allied with the nationalists in 1934. The second Eastern Turkestan Republic was founded on November 12th, 1944. Yes, that is exactly 11 years to the day after the first republic was formed. This government managed to successfully fend off the nationalists, though it was only really based in the northern part of Xinjiang, in the three districts of Ili, Altai and Tarabagatai. The Second Republic came to an end more peacefully than the first, as its transition to a coalition government with the rest of the non-rebellious parts of the province was negotiated by the more even-handed, multiculturally-minded, pro-minority nationalist governor Zhang Jidong. However, Despite Zhang's best efforts to make a straightforward handover, neither the nationalists nor the Turkestan Republic were very happy about the final deal, and so the Turkestan Republic still continued to disseminate propaganda in hopes of establishing their regime and bringing all of the parts of Xinjiang along with them. The nationalists felt that Zhang was too soft on the issue, and so instead they appointed the anti-Soviet Turkic politician named Masud to preside over the region in 1947, much to pretty much everyone's dismay. A series of protests and uprisings against him led to the dismantling of the coalition government and the re-emergence of the East Turkestan Republic, at least until 1949. Now, the East Turkestan Republics never had much luck. They were always caught between imperial powers, Russia and China, and they also had to deal with the backlash from the Civil War period, the Warlord period, and the Second World War, all the way up to 1949. Neither republic was ever really able to get off the ground, but despite their brevity, these periods serve as important starting points for the discussion of current CCP attitudes towards ideas of separatism in Xinjiang. These two short-lived states served as the foundation of modern-day Xinjiang nationalism as separate from their Chinese nationalist identity. Though their actual commitment to creating an independent Islamic state to encompass all Uyghur people is a little hazy, like Tibet and Mongolia, the brief and chaotic interim period between the Qing dynasty and the founding of the PRC gave the people of Xinjiang enough breathing room to consider their existence as a state based on ethnic and cultural ties as opposed to their status as vassals, tributes or provinces of China. Today, these briefly lived republics serve as an idea and a driving force of Uyghur nationalism, rather than a model for creating an ideal Uyghur state. As the CCP descended on Xinjiang in mid-1949, the KMT troops in the area were ordered by Jiang Jidong, who was still in charge of most of the province, to surrender. After some time, they did, 
leaving only the semi-independent non-republic of East Turkestan in northern Ili left to capture by the CCP. The republic was still allied with the Soviet Union, making it technically also an ally of the CCP as they were all socialist, but as we now know, things were not quite that straightforward. While the leaders of the Turkestan Republic nominally accepted CCP rule, they still wanted to discuss the details of the Republic's incorporation into the federal government that the CCP was still promoting at the time, which we also discussed in the episode on Mongolia. However, when the five leaders of the Turkestan Republic boarded a plane to visit with Mao in Beijing, their plane mysteriously disappeared and seemingly crashed somewhere near Lake Baikal, killing everyone on board and effectively ending any discussions about independent Turkestan for good. Yeah, I know. Honestly, your guess is as good as mine, but we're just going to leave that there for now. So, the incorporation of Xinjiang back into China under the CCP was, to all intents and purposes, peaceful. But, as we know, unrest bubbles just beneath the surface in a region filled with tension. For the final part of this episode, I want to discuss the impact of these historical developments on the current general situation in Xinjiang. So I'm not going to go into current affairs to do with human rights today, as this episode is already way too long, and that is a topic for a completely different, very future episode. Instead, what I want to talk about is the legacy of the imperial past on the socialist present, and how this past informs the CCP's policies and ideological attitudes towards Xinjiang today. So, let's start with some problems first. There is no doubt that the modern Uyghur population of Xinjiang have some issues with the central Chinese government that mainly stem from events and policies that we've already discussed. Essentially, what the people protest against is Han colonialism, and a regime of economic development that privileges the Han minority over the Uyghur majority and other much smaller minority groups in the region. The root of these grievances stem partially from the problem of unchecked hand migration. This sounds strange, considering that, as we've seen from the history of the region, Xinjiang has always been multicultural, it's never been a mono-ethnic, monocultural region. If anything, it's actually thrived on the influx of new peoples, cultures and religions, especially due to its position on the Silk Road. So why the problem with hand migration? It's not so much the uh, numbers of people but rather the introduction of their own ways of life at the expense of the peoples who are native to the region and their way of life, and also the environment of the region. To give an example, let's talk about the centralised state's approach to agriculture. So the cotton monoculture practised by settled hand farmers since Qing times is not only inefficient, but is actually draining the water reserves of the oasis and destroying the traditional irrigation system of the region. As traditional agriculture is pushed out, desertification in the region is spreading rapidly, making the current practices unsustainable and destructive to those who depend on the region for their livelihoods. There's also the problem of education and sinicization, not dissimilar to what we discussed in the previous two episodes. An important element of Han policies is that the local population master Mandarin Chinese, and like in Mongolia, This means teaching it at primary and secondary level and erasing local Uyghur language education at university level. Again, like in Inner Mongolia, 
The urban-rural divide emerges where Uyghurs who can speak Mandarin move to the cities to get jobs, while those who cling to their traditional ways of life are left in poverty in the countryside. The Uyghurs face further, different oppression than their Mongolian counterparts due to their Muslim religion, the suppression of which isn't a new thing but has been growing more since the 1990s. Three groups can be identified among the current Uyghur population the assimilationists, the autonomists, and the separatists. Those who want to assimilate into the multi-ethnic Chinese state dominated by the Han are in the minority, while the autonomists, those who want to preserve Uyghur culture, religion, and tradition, probably make up the majority. Separatists believe the same thing that autonomists do, but those seeking autonomy believe that it can be done while still part of the Chinese state, while the separatists don't agree. They're further divided into secularists and religious activists, those who believe in terrorist acts and those who want a more peaceful separation. Needless to say, the Chinese government doesn't recognise the legitimacy of the Uyghur people's claim to independence. In fact, the official position of the Chinese government is that Xinjiang has not only had close ties to the Chinese imperial court, it's actually been part of the Chinese empire since 200 BC. In a white paper produced by the Chinese State Council in 2003, titled The History and Development of China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, they claim that since the Western Han Dynasty, which is 206 BC to 24 AD, Xinjiang has, quote, been an inseparable part of the unitary multi-ethnic Chinese nation. They go on to say, quote, Since the Han Dynasty established the Western Region's Frontier Command in Xinjiang in 60 BC, the Chinese central governments of all historical periods exercised military and administrative jurisdiction over Xinjiang. The jurisdiction of the central governments of the Xinjiang region was at times strong and at other times weak, depending on the stability of the period. The people of all ethnic groups in Xinjiang actively safeguarded their relations with the central governments, thus making their own contributions to the formation and consolidation of the great family of the Chinese nation. End quote. They also go on to discuss in great detail the economic, educational, scientific, cultural and quality of life improvements the region has benefited from since the founding of the PRC. Like Mongolia, a problem that Xinjiang separatists would need to overcome is the huge dependence of the region on state funding and state jobs for its functioning. Xinjiang is more reliant than any other province on state funding, to the extent that it's often joked that the region is the last bastion of true socialism in China. This makes CCP propaganda about the realities of Xinjiang separatism all the more powerful. Progress, especially economic progress, is a cornerstone of the CCP's claims to legitimacy, and GDP growth is the stick against which it marks its success. In the powerful position the CCP is in today, Their stance on Xinjiang separatism not only makes sense, but is irrefutable if one thinks of the problem in terms of whose side is the international community going to take, the world's second largest economy, or a group of quasi-indigenous semi-united peoples that the majority of the world didn't actually know existed until a few years ago. In the white paper I just mentioned, after explaining how Xinjiang has always been a part of the Chinese empire, The Chinese government goes on to add that East Turkestan was an ancient Arabic term that had disappeared by the 18th century, but was revived in the 19th century by colonial powers expanding into Central Asia. They go on to explain at length and in detail 
how the current idea of an independent East Turkestan is basically a colonialist plot by the Russians, which was picked up by extremists in the 20th century. That kind of sounds like it was written by an American, but um, anyway, I'll read you what they say about the issue in their own words. Quote, In 1805, Timovsky, a Russian, used the term Turkestan, again in diplomatic mission report, to describe the geographical position of Central Asia and the Tarim Basin in China's southern Xinjiang. In the view of different histories, languages, customs and political affiliations of the two areas, he called the Tarim Basin in China's Xinjiang situated to the east of Turkestan as East Turkestan or Chinese Turkestan. In the middle of the 19th century, Russia annexed the three Central Asian Khanates of Kiva, Bukhara and Kokand, one after the other, and set up the Turkestan governorship in the Samarkand area of Central Asia. Therefore, some of the people in the West called the Samarkand area West Turkestan or Russian Turkestan and China's Xinjiang region East Turkestan. So all of that gobbledygook was basically a way of the Chinese government explaining why the words East Turkestan mean basically nothing. They go on to add that some separatists and religious extremists in Xinjiang were influenced by these international trends of religious extremism and basically reinstated the use of the word East Turkestan, claiming that it had been the proper history of the region for over 10,000 years and denying the history of the, quote, motherland jointly built by all the ethnic groups of China. So, of course, as we've already discussed, East Turkestan isn't just some fantasy place written down in stories or ancient Arabic textbooks. But, like I said, the position of the CCP is currently insurmountable, and thus their opinions on the matter are by default irrefutable, no matter what historians or anyone else has to say on the matter. This propaganda on the part of the CCP is very deliberate. It's designed so as to give no hope to the idea of an independent Xinjiang, and not to fuel the flames of an idea that may well be outside the realms of possibility today, but may not be so forever. The CCP is quite clever in that it often takes a very long-term view of situations, so it's not taking for granted the current economic, military and numerical superiority of the Han Chinese majority in China, and in Xinjiang more specifically. East Turkestan may just be a dream for the Uyghurs of Xinjiang today, but as the Chinese government well knows, it's a dream based on something tangible, something that once existed, if only for a brief period of time, and therefore something that could one day exist once again. Okay, I think we'll stop there for today. Discussions about ethnic cleansing, labour camps and totalitarian surveillance can get their own episode much later on in the series. For now, let's work on developing our understanding of the nature of CCP rule, especially in the 1950s. So in the next episode, we're going to be moving back to a sort of centralised political view of China in the 1950s, and we're going to be talking about the first five-year plan. Those of you who have signed up for the newsletter will see that there's a link linking to two pieces by The Economist. Uh, They're about the current plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I included them so that you can read them alongside today's current episode. Also, like I said at the beginning, don't forget that you can donate to the podcast if you wish to do so by going to the Sinobabble website and clicking on the donate button. You can make a one-off donation or sign up for a monthly contribution of any amount of your choosing. So that's it for this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next time. Bye.